Welcome to Jolty, a podcast to help you lift your perspective above this jolty moment and focus on the ultimate direction of our business and personal lives. Hi, I'm Maggie Wilkinson, CEO of Athena Global Advisors, and I'm excited to be here today with two praised and proven futurists and my friends, Faith Popcorn and Adam Hampt. In today's episode, we're diving into genetics, life expectancy, and super aging. And so with that, let's jolt. Whoa. Thanks, It's good to see you both. Good to see you. I want to lift 124, but with super limbs and new heart and new backbone, I don't want to be limping around on a walker. What do you think? You're interested in what we call health span, not lifespan. It's not the number of years, it's the life in your years. And I think that's what we want. That's and I beautiful. think we're getting there. It's going to take a while, but we're on the way. No doubt about it. Adam, when you said that, I was reminded of the time in my life that I lived in New Orleans. Never lived in a city where more people knew how to have a good time than New Orleans. And the life expectancy there is very low. And the joke in New Orleans for people that live there is that we live just as long as everybody else. We just get it done faster. (laughs) That's hysterical. You know, I mean, I would take any kind of drug that would help me live longer or look better. I know we're going to be talking about those today, but would you, Addie, would you be afraid to? No, but you know, it's only recently that we are actually even looking at developing drugs to help us live longer. We've spent billions on drugs to address specific conditions, but we've never had a drug approved or close that's about longevity in and of itself. So I heard about this new drug called metformin. I heard that you can live longer with this drug and is completely available. Metformin has been around for a long time, a couple of decades. It's prescribed as a drug for type 2 diabetes, which is adult onset diabetes. And it obviously keeps blood sugar down, but it also increasingly has been shown to have very powerful anti-aging benefits, plus benefits in reducing cancer, um, increasing cardiovascular health, and so forth. So apparently, People who believe in it say it's a wonder drug, and it's very cheap and very available. You need to get an off-label prescription, though. I think it's also considered quite safe. And Adam, I think it's actually been around since the late 1950s. So the efficacy of the drug has really been studied for a long, long time, and it's very cheap. It's very cheap, and it's been around. And the side effect profile is low, Maggie, as you say, although recently, if you're a nerd and reading all the studies, there are some troubling data about um, two things. One is if you exercise a lot, you're older, some of the protective effects of metformin decline. And also there was just a study that says it has some negative impact on your mitochondria. Which is what? They're basically the building blocks of the cellular building blocks. And uh, you don't want to, you don't want to have an argument with your mitochondria. So this is, this is beautiful. I don't have to exercise and I take metformin and live longer. I am so thrilled. That's couldn't be better. There are people who believe that, and we'll talk to Raymond about this, that it's a miraculous wonder drug and that it should be put in the water, basically. It's beautiful. You know, you can have it all then. That's fantastic. I think it's time to open up the conversation to the four of us. So let me introduce Raymond McCauley. We asked Raymond to join us because he is one of the most fascinating experts out there on longevity and what the future of life extension is going to be. He works at the level of biology, genetics, medicine, even agriculture, and how those all come together and converge to shape the future. So Raymond, welcome. Hello, Raymond. 
Hey, guys. How are you? Hello, Raymond. You know Adam, of course, and Maggie. Good to see you all. We're so happy to see you. So we were just like, you know, kind of pretending we knew something about this whole, <laughs> the whole field that you're in. Of course, everybody's interested in not aging. Uh, is this a trend? Well, it's a it's a great trend because you can really point like 200 years back and hopefully into the future, right? So the last 200 years, we've tripled our, our lifespan. The last 100 years, we've doubled it. And with one or two little exceptions, it doesn't show any indication that it's going to slow down. So why do you think that we have tripled our lifespan? How have we done that? We've had these great... Um, sort of moments in our history, like the, the penicillin moments, right? Where we've discovered new things and really had these revolutions in healthcare. So vaccines, public health, antibiotics, and the hope is we've got like multiple penicillin moments out ahead of us. You look at, you know, just cardiovascular health, the number of people used to die from heart attack compared to now, you've shrunk that number dramatically through earlier interventions, statin drugs, um, high, uh, drugs that address hypertension. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, it's kind of funny whenever you look at it historically, we've grown and then shrunk the number. We used to all die of contagious diseases. And we then started living long enough to get cancer and heart attack and stroke. And now we're really pushing on those chronic diseases, which you know, the pessimistic view is you'll then conquer those and live long enough to get something else. Yeah. And I think we have a couple of rounds of that in our future as humanity, but we've got these great tools at our disposal to do something about it. So my question is, I want a magic pill, a magic answer, something wonderful. So give me something, Raymond. I got some good news. I got some bad news. So yeah. the the bad news is a lot of the stuff is the same old, same old that you're used to hearing from, from your doc, right? It's, you need to exercise more and eat less and, and do certain things that are kind of good health maintenance. The good news is we probably have some magic pills on the horizon. And the maybe even better news is we've got a few things now already in our, our pharmacopeia, right, that we've developed for other uses that turn out that they've got these really great effects on slowing down, turning back, maybe hitting the pause button on some aging. What's the name of them? Well, um, before I go into the list, you know, I am not a doctor. Thanks for the warning, but go ahead. Yeah, but, but we're all adults here. We can make decisions. The One of the big tools is metformin, right? Metformin is a drug that we prescribe to people now who have got blood sugar problems. But whenever they've done some studies, they've seen people who have diabetes and take metformin live longer, and people who don't have diabetes and take metformin also live longer. It seems to have a suppressive effect on a bunch of different kinds of cancer. And, you know, just we're all better off in a bunch of different ways by having lower blood sugar. Over the last 10 years, the standards for what they consider diabetes, what they consider pre-diabetes and high blood sugar, it keeps going down because it seems it's better and better to treat it earlier and longer and in greater populations. Who's taking it now? Well, 
I'll volunteer. I'm. Uh, oh, right. We've talked about it. I'm taking it. Um, How much are you taking, Raymond? I'm taking uh, a few time release capsules a day, about 800 milligrams total. What are you taking, Addy? I'm taking two. No, I'm not. I'm not taking the time release. I'm taking two or sometimes even three 500 milligrams a day. Adam, a question for you. Taking 1,500 milligrams a day, does that upset your stomach? I had a child who took 2,000 milligrams a day, and it was really hard on her stomach. No, it's, no. I find that it's neutralized by gin. <laughs> we talked about this, Raymond. You're Barzillet up at Einstein, who is pushing the government to do this long-term study of metformin because he believes that it should be available on label as an anti-aging product and you should not force physicians and patients to ask for it off label. There's too many public health benefits and it needs to be um, more broadly prescribed. Absolutely. And the way US FDA works is you get drugs that are developed by these huge pharmaceutical companies. It's a billion dollar plus process, but they have to fit in this category of a certain, you know, match the drug to the disease. And it's a narrow therapeutic area. So it's gotta be not even just cancer, it's a particular kind of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma sort of thing. But we've got so many diseases that the big three killers of the, the developed world are really all have these big contributions from aging. And so if you can treat that underlying cause of aging, this promises a revolution. Yeah, the metaphor that's often used is the master switch of aging. We're playing whack-a-mole, chasing down the big three. Wouldn't it be great if we could figure out what triggers the big three and what are the biological markers and then solve for the real problem, not for the subsidiary problem? Absolutely. Adam, the big three are? Yeah. Cancer, heart disease, and stroke. I'm sure a lot of people are working on it because it seems to me that older people are the ones with the most money. You know, they pay anything, I think, to reverse aging. I mean, look what they pay for cosmetic surgery. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm talking to you from Silicon Valley. And so we get a lot of both above board inquiries and kind of behind the scene inquiries from these tech billionaires, hey, what can I do? What should I take? Could I get early access to this program? What should I be getting prescribed? The sort of disappointing truth for conspiracy theorists is there's not a lot going on that the billionaires are getting access to that no one else is. Yay, that's good. I like that. I, I think, you know, these things should be widely distributed. Once you know it works, you should, people should be getting access to it. They may be high priced, but Equal youthifying. Raymond, does prevention work? I'm, I'm going to give you a definitive I don't know. And and I, it's kind of like with the, these NR supplements, I actually held them at bay with a 10-foot, you know, long stick because anything that's that heavily marketed to me, I always suspect that there's something going on there. And you know, that's not proof that it works or doesn't work. It's just proof that somebody's paying some money to get it in front of you. But I figure if they're having to pay that much money to get it in front of me, you know, if they can't just depend on... Word of mouth. Yeah, word of mouth, scientific literature, a little bit of both, that something is up and it makes me... It, it makes... It looks like snake oil whenever that happens. But, you know, 
even though it's not regulated as a drug, it's regulated as a nutritional supplement, the FDA still governs it. And the amount of money they spend on advertising is so vast that they're on the FDA's radar. And apparently, they can keep doing it because they're qualifying their claims in a way that is, it's just like when this cosmetic says, eliminates the visible signs of aging. Doesn't say it makes you look younger. It's the same with prevention. If you deconstruct the claim, it's not that strong. Yes, Raymond, I have a question for you that goes back to what you said earlier about some of the tried and true diet being among them. I have a, this is anecdotal, but I have a grandmother who lived to be 101 and she ate blueberries every single day of her life for breakfast. And she swore before anyone talked about antioxidants. I mean, this was back in the 1950s and 60s. She was born in the late 1890s. And she swore by blueberries. She, she just, you know, and then we all kind of rolled our eyes when we were younger. And then this more came out about the, the antioxidant qualities. We wondered if there wasn't something to it. Are there superfoods? Do you believe that there are certain superfoods that can prolong your life? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, superfood has become sort of this overused marketing label. But whenever you look at anything that's got a high level of antioxidant, right, which is going to tend to more shut down DNA damage, shut down inflammation, if you look at anything that's got a low level of glycemic load, meaning it's not a big sugary thing. So, yeah, and, and you know, uh, the whole one ingredient thing, instead of eating some big processed shake with 82 ingredients on the list, something with blueberries or adding blueberries as a snack. And uh, yeah, the, absolutely. There's always that complexity between causation and correlation. I'm sure your aunt might have had many other factors that kept her going, healthier lifestyle, exercise, good genetics, minimum of epigenetic damage, and blueberries was probably a part of it. I think you're probably right. She could make a mean old-fashioned, Adam. (laughs) (laughs) That brings me to my next question. Well, Raymond, you know, have you heard anything about the positive effects of alcohol on people? Not red wine, but like you sing bourbon or Adam's case, gin or my case, rum. It, it's kind of funny. One of the things, there's this uh, push-pull in the literature. And whenever you try to look for the causation piece where it says, you know, alcohol is one of the worst things for you and it raises your, your blood sugar. And most healthy diets just say eliminate it. Then they, and they will show, you know, people who have five drinks, something like that, they're often a high risk category. On the other hand, someone who has a drink, a drink and a half a day is in a lower risk category, a a lower mortality category than someone who doesn't drink at all. I think it's the stress. I think you're less stressed if you have a drink or a drink and a half a day. Well, teetotalers do have shorter life expectancy, but you're right, the literature is, is mixed, and clearly there are cancers related to excessive alcohol consumption. Let's make a quick turn now to the subject of inflammation. Inflammation is having a powerful effect on research as we understand more and more about its negative effects on the body and our immune systems. Raymond, what, what are your thoughts on that? Sure, sure, and there's kind of, you know, there, there's, there's appropriate inflammation. You get a cut on your hand, you get an infection, it gets inflamed and if that's your body's way, that's your immune system's way of saying, you know, red alert, danger, recruit everybody to the, the scene of the crime, let's get something done. And that's good, generally, unless 
one, you're getting cut all the time and you're getting that inflammation response all the time. And that's just going to, along with whatever it is that's hacking at you, it's going to lower your life expectancy. Inflammation where your body is inappropriately responding to some stimuli with your immune system going, you know, bah! and without getting too gross, there's, the, we, we kind of joke about this. There's a problem that we have compared to our caveman ancestors. And we say we don't have enough worms. So all of our ancestors had these immune systems that were optimized for whenever you got infected with something or you had parasites or you, you know, you ate the gaming meat that was sitting around for five days, your immune system would respond and kill all of those worms and parasites and all the things going on. Now your immune system is like a cop in a suburb that doesn't have enough to do and is stopping everybody who rolls through a red light. Right. And so it's on this hair trigger. We, we also talk about, you know, the big three killers are, are heart cancer and to some extent neuro, the, killers that are coming after we conquer those one of the big ones is autoimmune we are just seeing so many places where your immune system's on a trigger so another question for you raymond is i'm seeing a lot in the literature about the importance of a balanced gut or your gut being your second brain and that balance there is key to health and we're starting to understand all kinds of health implications with that and i'm wondering if taking a good probiotic is also something that you would recommend. Yeah. It's another good news, bad news. I, it, it's amazing. Everything we have learned about the microbiome and your, your gut microbiome and to some extent your skin microbiome and both of these being not just protective against disease, but being responsible for this huge amount of processing of things in your body. And so it's like a chemical factory and it, uh, largely controls mood and all these other things. That's amazing. And we're finding these ways to test it, quantify it, start to modulate it. Now, here's the bad news. Anything that you think of that is going to improve your microbiome now, which is going out and getting some kind of yogurt or something, doesn't really move the needle. Any of the, the lactobacillus-based things, which is pretty much anything on the market, it's not a, an antibiotic or some kind of more crazy way to do it. It's not going to help you with long-term digestive issues. Raymond, what do you think of this whole fecal transplant movement? I kind of hate to do this. This is why nobody invites me to dinner parties anymore. But the idea is if you want to change your microbiome, that you could go ahead and get a sample of someone's feces. Not your that, own. Not your own. So someone else's where you want your microbiome to more closely match theirs and then basically mix it up in a specific way and take it as an enema so that it would get to your upper GI tract and it would colonize there. The bacteria, the good bacteria, the good E. coli there, and other things would colonize and you would get this transplant of differently abled bacteria that could do things that you want to do. Have, do you have to go to somebody specific for it to work or anybody's that that's one of the things that we've kind of seen um like taking any kind of thing to change your microbiome it doesn't work permanently uh if you want it to work longer like in the the two three four months range 
you're better off finding something from someone who is related to you. It turns out people who have the same genetic background as you tend to host the same bacteria, people in the same environment as you. So a close relative, what people have sometimes done is used a kid who's never been exposed to antibiotics for some reason. And this turns out to actually work pretty well. Now, at the same time, here we are talking about how this is such an important you know, mass of cells in your body that it's almost like another organ. So whenever you do this, it's almost like you're doing an organ transplant. So the idea of doing a DIY organ transplant, you should approach with some trepidation. The other thing is whenever you take a sample from someone else, you would also get some diseases that they might have, something that they carry. So things to be careful of. So they can't actually look at it to see if it's okay before you take it? Doable, but most people do this in a real DIY setting. There are people who actually swap by mail, swap by mail some of these samples. And um, you, they generally don't have access to that kind of testing. They're just saying, well, let's see how well this works. Some people are in real distress too. So you can see why they would go to that. I have an even more revolting question. So is there any other way to intake it beside... People have tried freeze-dried pills. That Those haven't seemed to work as well in my experience uh, because we can actually do a genetic run, uh, a, a, an analysis of somebody's microbiome content by looking at a still sample. It's just like freeze-dried food versus the real thing. You want your feces to be fresh. <laughs> Which doesn't sound like a great marketing slogan, but I think that that's absolutely right. I know that there is a study going on right now in Toronto where they're doing fecal transplants for people who are bipolar. We're going to discover a whole lot about the microbiome and its correlation, again, to mood, mental health. Wow. With metformin needing to be prescribed off-label, there are many anticonvulsants now that are being prescribed for bipolar disorder instead of lithium that are very effective. Adam, I'm curious, I watched uh, Jennifer Doudna being interviewed this week and you know she got the Nobel Prize for CRISPR. Do you think there's any implication for CRISPR with aging? I, you know, again, I'm not the expert, but yeah, I think gene editing is definitely something that doesn't require FDA really. You can just go in and do it. You know, we don't know that much about it. But just in terms of the promise of CRISPR to shut off certain genes and to turn on certain genes, you're not inserting genes, it's not a gene gun, it's just basically changing a variety of on-off switches. Uh, that's why it doesn't need FDA, I don't think. Um, I think it's pretty unlimited future for CRISPR. CRISPR is probably the penicillin moment for the 21st century. The idea that we can do gene editing and that we can do it and just kind of like a quick one, two, three punch. We can do gene editing on embryos and we can knock out genes that cause problems. Like we could take out the CCR5 gene so nobody ever gets HIV anymore. We could take out an SLC gene so nobody ever gets type two diabetes anymore. And doing that on kids, you know, in the womb and when they're little bitty cells or before they go in the womb, if you're doing IVF, amazing stuff. If I can, I want to pivot to something that I know is on everybody's mind, and why shouldn't it be? That's the vaccine. We've got Pfizer, BioNTech, we've got Moderna, 
and we all read about this mRNA or messenger RNA. It's pretty complicated. I kind of struggle with myself. Raymond, explain it for us. Lay it out. The folks who are coming out and they're saying it's the very first one. They've been working on this kind of thing for 10 or 12 years. And what's going on is a revolution in vaccines and, a, and in drug delivery. You know, a polio vaccine, you took dead and dying polio virus, but you could also cause problems with that. And we've kind of gone on from there where we use these attenuated vaccines or we even use genetic engineering to copy just a piece of the invading virus or bacteria and then put that in our body so our immune system sees it and says, I know what to go after. Now we've gone a step further with that, but we don't even say, here's a piece of the virus. We say, here's a DNA that codes for the virus. In fact, we say, here's mRNA that codes for the virus. You're, we put that in a cell and the cell makes that protein and then exposes it to the immune system. The immune system says, thanks for the tip. I'll watch out for that. Wow. This is exactly what's going on. And it's got implications, but beyond what's going to happen with coronavirus, we're going to use that to probably make vaccines for things like HIV that have been very vaccine resistant and for a lot of different diseases that are still like communicable diseases, not generally a big deal in the developed world. In the less developed world, it is, and we're going to be able to cheaply wipe out a lot of things that we can't. And we're going to use it for cancer, especially. And then we're going to start using it to reprogram our immune system from all these autoimmune diseases that we're going to start dying from in the second half of the 21st century. We would never have had this warp speed development, but for the pandemic. You know, I think this is, you said a penicillin moment before we had an antibiotic moment. I think this is going to be a huge amount of wind in the sails of big pharma. People are going to say, wait a minute, maybe big pharma's not so big and ugly. After all, look what they did here. They did in a year what should have taken five. Yeah, it's been a, like close to miracle status, right? And I think there's even, you know, it'll be one of several revolutions around reading and writing DNA. Big pharma has written the checks and wrestled with the regulatory stuff, which is sort of their role. It's like they're the major league teams in baseball and little biotechs who are actually doing the innovative work and they've got you know, three people, five people, a hundred people. They are sort of the farm leagues that Big Pharma invests in. So we're gonna see an explosion. And in fact, it's been like for investing, for doing anything in the financial markets with these guys in the last two quarters, it's wiped out what other record years have looked like. And so it's going to be impressive. Interesting. Is this the side effect, like you said, the bad? Is it going to be explosive population because not, nothing is knocking these people off? The good news is worrying about population is probably something like having 70s linoleum that kind of belongs back in the 70s. It was a, a valid concern more then with a lot of these medical advances over the next century we are not going to get higher than 10 billion people on the planet. If you can increase not just lifespan, but health span, productivity, two, three, four, five careers in a lifetime, the economic value that's added to the world far and away is greater than the cost of keeping those people alive now. 
I mean, the last, you know, five years of life or three years of life cost potentially millions of dollars. So net-net, we're better off keeping people not just alive, but to compress morbidity, as it's called, so that you've got healthier people longer. Raymond, I have a, a question for you. Let's say I'm 85 years old right now and I'm in pretty good health. If I can live 10 more years in pretty good health, is there a chance that I'm really gonna get to live 20 or 30 more years because of the advances in science? I think so. I, I think, you know, sort of the simple version of this longevity plan is to basically, you know, every day, every year, you're telling death, not yet. And the longer you live, the more things we're finding and discovering, the better we understand what's going on, the more interventions we have. It's really, to some extent, a waiting game, which is why, you know, there's kind of this funny switch. A lot of this is, here's all these pieces about eating right and doing good health maintenance that's the same old boring stuff. It's not very sexy. Until we get to the point where we have all these crazy switches we can throw and miracle pills we can take and these crazy procedures. Then mm-hmm. the ability to live to 120 is not unrealistic. And you know, right now, if you get to 70 in good health, the odds of living to 80 and beyond are greater than the risk of dying between 60 and 70. So mm-hmm. once, you through, once you get through the, 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 the period when the age-dependent diseases really strike, and if you could get past them, then kind of keep on going. Mm-hmm. Get through the gauntlet, exactly. I don't know. I'm curious. How long does somebody really want to live? We've all assumed that the the longer the better, you know, and do we all really want immortality or is there sort of a a certain point where you're like, enough's enough? I don't know. You know, if you think about evolutionary biology, so we've evolved and our brains evolved and a sense of memory and time and perspective evolves not to live to 130. So I don't know if we're wired to understand being alive for that long, which is another way to address your question, Maggie. Historically, to, to bring up two quick things. One is people always talk about like, oh, multi-generational families and all these things. We really haven't had multi-generational families until present time because most people's older folks, their parents and grandparents died off right. fairly quickly. And yes. you, all, you had the exceptions, but they were the exceptions. Now it's the standard. You have people who are living, as a matter of course, in their 70s, 80s, 90s. Almost, you know, half the population gets to that point. And kids born today, even without looking at some of the crazy things that we're going to have, have this great longevity arc. So we're already having to, like, rejigger how families work and what do you do with parents. And less of the old, decrepit, Thing. You know, we have this thing in our head where you get old and then you're supposed to retire and do these things. We are seeing people retire and start second careers, have their side hustle become a main yeah. thing or, or live these really healthy lives. One of the things like we, we talk about 80 is the new 40. There's so much like you were saying with uh, fertility and, and growing babies in tanks. And, you know, mm-hmm. if you're going to live to 130, maybe you, go, you have your first group when you're like in your 30s probably. You know, and then maybe 50s or 60s, and then maybe you'll have another bunch, you know, unless you're sick of it by then in your 90s. So people could have 90-year-old parents. Yeah, the whole Rubik's Cube of society will change. I just want to say, Raymond, you have been so fabulous. 
and so interesting and so not only knowledgeable, but your way of breaking it down so somebody like me can really get it and our audience can really get it has been just extremely impressive. And I just want to thank you so, so much. Yeah, I mean, this has been great. And I think it's important to unpack it the way you do and explain it because a lot of people are afraid of this. They don't want it. It's, it's one of those situations, some people run to it and some people run from it because it's, to your point, Faith, so overwhelming. So yes. much of your existing frameworks have to be re reconstituted to grasp this. It's kind of hard to grasp. It's such a huge pleasure to be on. And, and I think it's so important for people to, to think about these things and kind of stretch those mental muscles about what happens if and what happens if, because it's not, you know, so much if now as when. And right. we're, we're going to be in for huge shocks personally and in our families and economically and with society. And if we don't do a little bit of plan ahead, it's going to be tumultuous. So, you know, fingers crossed that we get those good outcomes. Right. It's going to challenge the creativity of society in a good way. Well said. Thank you again, Raymond, and we'll see you soon. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks guys. Bye.